This is a podcast from the Queen City Podcast Network. And welcome to another episode of Queen City Nerves News Hounds Podcast. My name is Ryan Pitkin, and today we have not one but two guests that I've been trying to get on here for a long time, and landed them both at the same time, so I think we're going to have a great conversation. Uh, first off, we have Julie Porter, the president of Dream Key Partners. Julie, how's it going? Great. I yeah. appreciate you coming on, and we also have Liz and kelly the CEO at Roof Above. Liz, how's it going? Yeah. So grateful to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. And I think um, the the sort of timeliness angle here is that you guys both uh, are working on similar new projects, but I want to make sure to bring our readers up to speed on what you all do, because I think even folks who um, are sort of somewhat familiar with the work that or the fields that you guys work in are still sort of can be iffy on you know how dream key partners compares to Olivian compares to habitat for humanity or whatnot and with roof above i still think of it as a recent merger but i guess it's been a long time now four years it still uh, feels recent. right roof above is the uh the result of a merger between men's shelter and urban ministry and uh i think some people who aren't as close and paying as close attention as we all are, uh, might sort of still get slippery as to what the work is that you all do. Obviously, um, from a very broad, broad level, Julie works in affordable housing. Uh, Liz Claus and Kelly works in homelessness. Uh, that is at the broadest definition. So I'm going to pass it to you all for a more specific definition. Julie, how would you describe the work that Dream Key Partners does here in Charlotte? Yeah, we do a number of things. Um, one of the most important probably is home ownership right now mm -hmm. because rents are rising so quickly. Um, home ownership, even though interest rates are high and it's hard to find a home, uh, is becoming more viable because the payments are equal almost to rent. So we do home buyer education. Uh, we actually administer the city of Charlotte's down payment um, assistance program as well as North Carolina's program. Um, so people can get up to $80,000 right now in down payment assistance to actually buy their first home. Um, and how new is that in terms of that opportunity? You know, we've always had down payment assistance. We didn't used to have quite as much as we do right now. $80,000 really goes a long way and it can actually go to buy down interest rates. So people could have a big advantage. Um, and we're also seeing less competition for homes right now because the investors aren't quite as interested um, with interest rates as high. So people have a good chance. Uh, we actually build single-family homes, mm -hmm. affordable ones, for people who are buying their first home. Um, and then we also build multifamily housing. Mm -hmm. And we will get into your newest development. Just broke ground. Uh, I want to say now it's been about three weeks or two weeks, but we'll talk more about that. Uh, Liz, uh, run me down. There's a lot that Roof Above does, <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, in an elevator pitch, sort of uh, run down as to what, what Roof Above is all about. Yeah, so we are actually North Carolina's most comprehensive homeless service provider now, and that's really because of the merger. So I think, you know, at our 
historically and kind of at our root, we're providing basic services for people experiencing homelessness. We have at this point more than 500 shelter beds for men who are homeless, and that's stretched across three shelters, as well as a day services center um, for people who are sleeping outside. So it's a place where folks can get mail and take a shower. We are open 365 days a year, have laundry and housing uh, resources there as well. So that's where we started. And that's kind of the homeless services piece of what we do. Uh, But after we'd done that work for a while, we realized there were people who needed housing opportunities that didn't exist. And so we actually became a housing developer and housing provider. So we now have around 700 units of housing that either we own and operate or we're partnering with landlords and subsidies. And those are really specific types of housing. I love to I love to move people into Dream Key Partners housing. And so we want to work with the um, available affordable housing resources. But most of our housing is for folks with um, very significant disabling conditions who need support services on site. Mm-hmm. And I visited, I believe it was August of last year when you opened Clanton or Rise on Clanton. Yeah. Um, so that's been, oh, it's been exactly a year. Um Tell me a little bit about how that's how that's coming along. Yeah. How, how folks have settled in. So I think today we'll probably talk about some of the challenges in the affordable mm-hmm. housing market, Absolutely. of which there are many. And uh, so then you take the silver linings that exist. And so one of the silver linings of COVID was hotels, motels really found low occupancy. And so we uh, had this opportunity to purchase a former quality inn on Clanton Road. Uh, it's now 88 apartments. So we were able to, we utilized it in partnership with Salvation Army for a shelter for several months. And then we went in and added kitchens to all the rooms. And so now it's 88 apartments. And then on site, we have case managers, we have a full-time nurse um, and kind of round-the-clock support, um, round-the-clock staffing on our front desk. And everyone who's moved in was experiencing homelessness at least a year or longer. So very vulnerable people um, are now our tenants. And I spent the morning there and it's, you know, uh, housing doesn't solve everything. I always say, you know, when you're in our shelters or doing street outreach, housing's the finish line. It's mm-hmm. the best moment when someone signs a lease and gets a key. But in all of our in all of our housing programs, housing's just the starting point, right? Mm-hmm. It's and it's what do people do with this opportunity? And and we really allow our tenants to say, here's what I'm trying to achieve, and we try to walk alongside them to achieve those goals. Absolutely. And on that same note, I'm going to start on two positive notes before we get into the, the struggles <laughs> of the fields. And the, uh, but as I teased just a second ago, uh, Dream Key was just at a groundbreak. Dream Key just hosted a groundbreaking for your new development. Uh, is it Aveline or Aveline? It's Aveline. Aveline uh-huh. at Orange Street. That's in Greer Heights. Tell me a little bit about this new project. Yeah, that was a really great project. Um, we were actually donated the land for that particular project, and it will be 18 affordable um, townhomes for people who qualify. Um, again, the down payment assistance is available up to $80,000 per unit. So mm-hmm. if the, the prices start about 285000 and people can bring that down pretty significantly if, for a mortgage. Mm-hmm. And is that sort of an automatic, uh, I don't know, are there, are there folks on your staff who are working with all 18 families moving in? Uh, to Avaline specifically to get that homeownership assistance, or is it more just like we're building this and if you want to apply for that, you can? 
Um, for the most part, we are working already with many of these people. As Liz mentioned, there's kind of a journey that they go on. Mm -hmm. um, and lots of times a home ownership journey starts two years before they actually purchase the home. So we're working with them. We're trying to help them reach their goals, whether that's a savings goal or improving their credit. Um, and then over time, as they're getting ready for home ownership, then we take them through home ownership education just to make sure not only are they ready for home ownership, but they are ready for the long-term ownership. Mm -hmm. um, and then we get them approved for the House Charlotte program and potentially uh, the North Carolina program as well. Right. Absolutely. Right. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. I think that people are um, with us lots of times, two to three years even. Yeah. Yeah. And that's in Greer Heights, a uh, neighborhood that's seen uh, – underserved, I guess, if you want to use the cliche term, um, I think in, in the release discussing the new development, it spoke about some of the home prices as compared to neighboring neighborhoods, things like that. I think what I'm interested in is how you come in and build, you know, high quality housing. And, you know, is it just the fact that you are keeping AM or keeping housing prices at a certain AMI? Does that help with making sure that it doesn't, I don't know, push other people out, neighbors, rising property prices, things like that? How is that? Yeah, in the Greer Heights uh, neighborhood specifically, mm -hmm. um, it's gentrifying so quickly mm -hmm. that our housing will probably be the least expensive mm -hmm. that's being sold, even for little, you know, um, thousand foot bungalows and things like that. They're right. selling for $300,000 just for people to take them to down. Take them down yeah. yeah. And that's happening a lot in that particular neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we're doing um, it, it, with this project, as well as two other projects is preserving affordable housing, hopefully for the people who already live there. Mm -hmm. So we're doing both. I mean, Avaline at, at Orange Street is fantastic and it's a home ownership opportunity, but we're also going to be building rental mm -hmm. in the Greer Heights neighborhood because we do know that high quality rental is also a goal of that particular neighborhood. We just got awarded 9% tax credits for a new project oh, in Greer okay. Heights. So it is really exciting um, for, to get that one started. And then we're also going to be working on one on some county owned land. Right. And how many do you know yet or finalize any, uh, the amount of units on a rental on the um, one that's already approved, 70 mm -hmm. units, mm -hmm. um, and then on the Mecklenburg County uh, property, about 265 units that's going to be senior housing, family housing, and home ownership. Right. So it's going to be really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And how often do you see what we were just discussing in terms of the uh, gentrification, displacement in places like Greer Heights? I think a lot of people have those conversations and they'll do any number of panel discussions around Charlotte and task force and, and read about it in the newspaper. But how often do you see the real results of I was just housed and I'm talking to Liz here, I guess I should say, but, uh, you know, I was just housed two months ago, one month ago and developers came through. I know, I think the, uh, I'm forgetting the development that was just knocked down only a matter of months ago. But uh, I know WSSC did a good bit of coverage on it, and they already built a new development right on top of it. But when you see stuff like that, how often yeah. do you come into contact with the folks who are like, here I am now, unhoused because of a, situa a decision by a developer that affected me immediately? So I'm going to try to answer this briefly, but I could talk yeah. a long time about this. because <laughs> um, So the realities for homelessness... Uh, 
the government defines homelessness in this very narrow way, mm -hmm. which is like you're in an emergency shelter or you're sleeping outside or someplace unfit for human habitation. The reality is there are so many people doubled up, you know, living in a motel. Motels aren't housing, but they really act as like a form of, of housing in our community. And so most people, when they are displaced from, you know, a place that their name was on the lease, end up going to friends and family. They're doubling up. They're utilizing resources before they're ending up at the doors of a homeless service provider like Roof Above. Um, they are very vulnerable still, right? So, mm -hmm. and, and I, I would push back on some of our definitions of homelessness that mm -hmm. the government has because it's really, I think, understating the true housing crisis that we're in. And so we rarely will see someone like, I just was evicted from my housing and that we're at the front door. That's actually pretty rare for us. Mm -hmm. We see many people who've experienced displacement and who've experienced eviction. Where it is very <laughs> related is... This city is becoming so expensive. Like we know what people's incomes are. We have that data and, and we can do the math and we can just say there's not space for the people who live in our community. Mm -hmm. Like our housing prices have grown in a way that there's not room for everyone. And there's some real, there's a good book, Homelessness is a Housing Problem, and they've got some good data in there. It's simple data. And it shouldn't seem revolutionary, but essentially it says cities that have high poverty actually have the lowest homeless rates. Cities that have the least poverty have the highest homeless rates. And that's really wow. counterintuitive because everyone experiencing homelessness generally is also experiencing poverty. But it's um, cities with, with uh, high wealth tend to have high housing prices. So mm -hmm. essentially, we see homelessness where housing is very expensive. Mm -hmm. And this city is becoming more and more expensive. And it's still like, you know, we see staff all the time who've moved from New York and feel like, well, compared to New York prices, like Charlotte feels affordable. But for people who have lived here and built lives here, they're seeing you know, the opportunity for them to own a home or even rent a home, like that's disappearing around us. Mm -hmm. um, and that has a real cost to a community. Right. Well, if I could say too, Liz, it also is displacing a lot of people who have lived in our community for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. You know, rents are rising so quickly and we're seeing neighborhoods that have been traditionally African-American that are overnight gentrifying and there's really no place for those people to find rental housing in Charlotte that is less expensive or at the same cost as what they had. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't exist right now. And so what we're seeing is the people who have the least ability to pay rent are having to actually move further and further out of the city. And then they have a commute that is also costing them money. So we're just seeing the results of Charlotte's growth um, and becoming a very popular city um, to live in and the pandemic. The mm -hmm. pandemic absolutely did cause some of this rise in rental prices as well as housing prices. Right. And we'll definitely talk about that a little bit. I know, um, Liz, you're, you're, uh, I shouldn't say your world was turned upside down because it was the folks who were in crisis, but I mean, it was during the pandemic that sort of this, uh, this population was uh, 
came to the forefront or it was it was unable to turn away from with the, with the sort of expansion of this uh, what people were calling tent city at the time right outside of um, Urban Ministry Center. Can I still call it the, the service day service center? You know, uh, so many people we serve still call it the herbs. So, yeah, right. you know, it's technically <laughs> the day services center of roof above, but I'll definitely yeah. let you say Urban Ministry well, no, Center. Uh, I guess we can talk about that now because you brought it up and, and I do want to come back to what you just said because I have so many different <laughs> things I want to run down in terms of topics, but just in terms of where where that put us in terms of general uh the general population becoming aware mm -hmm. of folks who are living in tents and i've known for quite some time since uh, you know i came up reporting on this as one mm -hmm. of the topics that i was always reporting on since 15 years ago but folks had no idea of and there still are tent communities throughout mm -hmm. they're just not right in the line of visibility for well-to-do folks quote unquote driving into work in uptown what did that sort of do to the to your to affect your work? Yeah. So COVID impacted our work in so many ways, but mm -hmm. I want to really zone in on what you shared, which is um, I think people had the perception homelessness exploded mm -hmm. during um, COVID times. And the reality was we were receiving more support for housing services during COVID times, right? So Dream Key Partners and others were doing phenomenal in the eviction moratorium. Who knew we could even ask oh, our right. federal government to halt evictions? Mm -hmm. And and that was tremendous because because you know we would have really been challenged to um, be dealing with an eviction crisis on top of all that we were doing. Um, but we were actually able to shelter more people um, during times of COVID because of additional support. So we had multiple hotel motel options, um, socially distanced emergency shelter, as well as more traditional models. Um, but there was the most visible and most concentrated encampment mm -hmm. that our community had ever seen, at least that I'm aware of. I wasn't here in the Great Depression in Hoovervilles, right. but certainly in, in recent history of homelessness as we know it. Um, and if you look through our point in time count numbers, you know, our numbers of people sleeping unsheltered. Uh, were not that different than what we were seeing necessarily during COVID. The difference was people couldn't look away from it. Mm. And so when you think about the the and what we called the North End Encampment at its height, maybe had 200 tents. And right now in our community, we have about 3,000 people experiencing homelessness. And when you think about how it felt to see 200 tents and think, gosh, if all 3,000 people experiencing homelessness, like if that was visible, if we could feel what that, you know, looked like and felt like as a community, I mean, the, the kind of unilateral response to the encampment was this is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And of course it's unacceptable, mm -hmm. right? Human, like human beings are created in need of safe, stable housing. Um, but it wasn't, I think, for those of us who've done the work for a long time, it's like it's always been unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And are you responding now to the reality of people having to sleep outside or are you responding to how that's you making you feel? To look at it. Right. right. And, uh, and so I think there were a lot of challenges, but there was more momentum. And I think for me, in COVID, there were so many 
things that we got to try and there was funding that we'd never seen before. I mean, I think about the eviction prevention mm-hmm. and all and that rental was assistance rental program. assistance program. Mm-hmm. And it's like we were unified as a community, but really as a nation mm-hmm. around understanding the importance of housing. And now, you know, here we are three years later and it's like, how do we keep capturing that belief that we can do things differently and we can prioritize. I really, you know, I long for that energy and possibility we had. Um, and how do we sustain that? Because mm. we are, it's it's still a crisis. It's Absolutely. more it's a more of a housing crisis now than it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and But the kind of uh, public policy and public response is, is different than it was in the height of COVID. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you feel... In, in either in both of your uh, fields in terms of affordable housing uh, and houselessness, I mean, they go hand in hand. So I'll, I'll just sort of, we can assume we're talking about both here for the rest of the conversation, but is d- have you felt sort of a flagging or a slowing down of that uh, energy to want to help? Well, from a, especially from a building new affordable housing, I do think that there's a little bit less of an urgency. Um, first of all, the funding has changed dramatically. We no longer have America, American Rescue Plan funding, mm-hmm. the ARPA funding, um, that really significantly provided additional funding for us to build affordable housing. So we're kind of back to the old formulas. Mm-hmm. And we are not back to the old costs. Mm-mm. You know, right. the costs have like gone up. 50%. Which means those more. old formulas don't oh, work in do the same work. way. Mm-hmm. So there's new gaps. And it is really difficult to talk to a funder about, you know, there's a $2 million gap or there's a $3 million gap in this particular project because it's so so much money. Mm-hmm. And we, we're finding it more of a struggle to start new projects um, and trying to figure out where all the resources are going to come from. And Honestly, it's going to still have to be a federal response because there's not enough local money, um, at least at, with the housing trust fund currently at the $50 million every two years level, mm-hmm. um, in order to do all of the units that even we could do if, mm-hmm. if we had the proper resources. Yeah, I do. Like, I think Charlotte, Mecklenburg County, you know, and homelessness, Mecklenburg County does things that really no other county in North Carolina does. So locally, we've had a lot of innovation and, you know, we've we've increased mm-hmm. the housing trust fund to 50 million. And Julie, I think you're right. Like housing policy, when you look at our history, like it really starts as a federal policy. And, you know, I had some, some hope, you know, that, that because housing is something that, uh, people can unify around. Um, so I had some hope, you know, at the federal level, there's very litter, little other than like maintaining status quo that we're able to do at the federal level. And I had some hope for a moment and you saw some things during COVID be possible, but it is, what is it going to take to really help federal policy begin to address the housing crisis in cities? Or even local policy, because, you know, what we're finding is that there are more and more restrictions. You know, you need to to perform better. You need to have more 30% of AMI uh, units. Amen to that. You know, I'm very passionate about that. I am too. (laughs) Yeah. But the problem is that you have to be willing to fund it. Absolutely. You know, because those units, basically, you need 100% subsidy in order to provide them. 
um, because the rent does not cover the operating expenses on an annual basis. So we need to also be willing to fund mm -hmm. those units as they come available. And, and I think that it's really difficult to, to, to wrap your head around the fact that, okay, you know, we used to get 22,000 a unit in housing trust fund, and now we need 42 mm -hmm. or we need 52 and or depending upon what the income mix. And that's not just happening locally. That's happening on a national basis. Um, everybody is under increased um, expectation mm -hmm. of providing services or also uh, additional very low income housing um, without having any support behind it or any additional subsidies behind it. So um, we are you know, in a period of time where people I don't think have decided how we're going to move forward mm -hmm. um, with some of these types of projects. But at the same time, I think everybody knows that we need a new solution. you turn to stay in touch with the city around you. Broadcast news isn't what it used to be, and commercial radio doesn't scratch that itch. If only there was one place you could get it all, when you want, wherever you want, on your schedule, there is the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city on your schedule at queencitypodcastnetwork.com and everywhere you get your podcasts. I had Luana Mayfield in here a month or two ago, and we spent a lot of time talking about an old uh, promise by city council about, I had done a lot of reporting around Moore Place when it was built, <laughs> and uh, there was like sort of such a, an energy about, we're going to build a bunch of these, <laughs> and at the time, and then just sort of the political will, you know, there's two-year city council terms, and things change, and the political will just wasn't there anymore. Um, that's... For those who don't know or hadn't listened to that episode, we know More Place is one of those wraparound services only for chronically homeless folks. It's very similar to how Rise at Clanton yeah. operates, other than it was new construction. But, um, I mean, how how much would that help if we had folks on board to buy, I mean, to, uh, to build more of these supportive or housing first model sort of projects? So we at Roof Above, we're huge believers in housing first, mm -hmm. which is essentially the concept of kind of our old way of thinking is, okay, what, you know, what crisis happened in your life that might have caused homelessness? Let's try to address that. And then, then you move into housing, right? And like, gosh, thank goodness I didn't have to like be perfect before mm -hmm. I, I was able to actually right. <laughs> through uh, the, I bought my first house with down payment assistance back oh, uh, wow. Uh, back in the day when I was early on in my nonprofit career. So always grateful um, for that. So, you know, most of us don't require to, ha to have everything like perfectly functioning in our life to move into housing. And so Housing First just understands that when folks are struggling with disabling conditions or substance use or mental health, actually having stability, actually having a safe place is a, is a, a much better base to begin to do that healing work. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's some controversy on the West Coast now around housing first, but I think that at least in this community, we've we've tended to be really unified in understanding this is a, a good approach. Um, but it is really 
primarily approach around ending homelessness and specifically chronic homelessness. Mm. When we pull into the data, what we see is just a mass need, like the vast majority of the need are for apartments that rent for five, six hundred dollars a month. And I was doing street outreach work, you know, probably I'd say 10 years ago, there were still duplexes that you could find for $500 rent. Mm -hmm. Like there were people that I could, if you had, you know, a a job that was 40 hours a week, you know, maybe paying minimum wage or you had a retirement um, social security check, maybe you could make it work. Now, you know, today there are really, if you need affordable housing, the market no longer provides it's unrealistic it. Unrealistic for $500. Yeah. Anything. Yes. And so the market's not going to produce that. The market's not even producing things really less than $1,000 mm-hmm. at this point. And so where we existed as a community with the market covering, actually holding a, a good bit of our affordable housing weight that we needed here. Um, now you have all of that has gone into the hands of real estate, you know, investments that might be local, might be national, might be international. Um, and so these older apartments are being purchased and either torn down and replaced or upgraded and moving rents, you know, that used to be 750 now 1400 So Got to get a movie theater in there and a dog groomer and a in order to open an apartment. Some kombucha. Yes. Um, so I think some of the most important work actually nationally is happening right here, which is this effort to preserve older apartments and hold them affordable through philanthropic investments. So it's the work of the Housing Impact Fund. And I think they're now over, they've preserved over a thousand apartments. We've partnered with um, the main partner there to preserve affordability in East Charlotte at Hill Rock Estates. And so I think, you know, if you go to L.A. or Seattle, New York, like there's none of this like older apartment, but we still have some units left in Charlotte. So this Mm -hmm. is a critical time. And you've done, Julie, a NOAA preservation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've done a NOAA preservation. We've looked at others and lost out on the bids to investors who have come in with much higher prices these days. Um, But um, they, they absolutely are critical in our in our city and they are disappearing they, I think that it's actually declined by more than 50% in the last like 10 years, um, maybe even now 70% mm. because people are, are investing in them and they know that they can double the rents right. and they can pretty much double them overnight. And yeah, and I guess the important work is how, what, where does it come, who does it fall to to identify those NOAA, uh, and then they have these conversations at city council on a regular basis, but it just... I guess that leads me to my next thing, which is one of the biggest uh, issues I have or or questions about solutions in terms of um, the housing crisis it really has to do with timing and development. Um, because even with, I noted down here, even with the existing hotel on Clanton, you started in May 2021 and it took until August 2022 to open. And it's just like... I. This is going to sound crazy to anyone who knows me or, or listens to me a lot, but I agree with Tarek Bakari every once in a while when he's talking at a city <laughs> council meeting and he's just like, we're we're passing all of these uh, projects through the um, housing fund, but then they take so long that we're not really making a drop in the bucket. Mm-hmm. So is I, I, I don't assume you guys have the answer to that, but I mean, it must feel overwhelming to like trying to speed this process up. Mm -hmm. Is it possible? 
No. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, unfortunately, the development of new affordable housing you know, from beginning to end usually takes three to four years, right. you know, because by the time you apply for the credits, you know, get the, get the credits. I mean, we've had to wait in Greer Heights three years to actually get the credits. Mm -hmm. So in some of those cases, then you have to go for permitting, then you have to, you know, start construction, construction's 18 months. Um, it's just going to take a, quite a bit of time from beginning to end, from planning to actual, you know, opening of the doors. But um, I, what I see is very similar to what Liz was talking about is because wages are not keeping up with rents, we are simply not going to catch up, mm -hmm. you know, with, with the affordable housing crisis here in Charlotte. And I think that I'm really worried right now that mm -hmm. we're going to go the way of Seattle and Portland and some of the other cities where, you know, they become such strong market cities that, you know, people of lower wage just simply cannot live just here. Pushed right, yeah. Just pushed out. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I will say, and um, I, I share your concern, and we're going to try mm -hmm. not to be too. We're not going to be too, too negative, depressing on your. No, but it's, I you know, it's it's very. I'm not real. looking for and doom and gloom. I'm just like <laughs> I'm looking for you to uh, relieve me of this. So I think anxiety. Well, and Bokari's been a supporter of of this as a solution, and in theory, like we have two major tools we've used as a nation to make housing affordable. So one are tax credits that you've mentioned. And I think with Julie will say between kind of changes in the tax code and in rising construction prices, their viability without matching it with lots of other dollars becomes, it, it's much more difficult much process. More challenging. So that tool that we've depended on is not useful in the same way. The tool, other tool that is quick, so mm -hmm. that's the benefit, is subsidy. Right. We've got these apartments with market rate landlords. If I can only afford $500 and rents, you know, $1,200, well, for $700 a month, I can subsidize you and you can access that apartment. And, and we've done a lot. We call it our scattered site housing program. And um, it's been very interesting. I've watched us do that through the years where we were able to, you know, really locate several landlords because because they knew, you know, the rent would be paid. It was right. a, 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 a subsidy source that was consistent. Um, but now landlords, it's such a tight rental market, really right. have their pick of who wants to be there. And so uh, it's the Section 8 program or Housing Choice Voucher program has been kind of this other big tool of, of mm -hmm. using subsidy. And now you see that tool in tight rental markets almost not functioning. So we got special vouchers during COVID called EHV vouchers. And we'll have to return some if we can't figure out how mm -hmm. to get those leased up. Right. And um, and so it's like, oh, my gosh, if these are the two two tools that we've largely been depending on as a nation and now neither working in tight rental markets, mm -hmm. we have to create new tools. Right. Living in North Carolina, the General Assembly kind of like we've got some innovation, I think, locally, but the our kind of state restrictions sometimes keep us from being getting to be creative and create those new tools. Right. And one of those creative ideas, would you say, and I don't know, I think the NCGA, I think I don't know if this is even possible, would be like mandatory minimums for um, affordability in any given apartment development um, because we've had optional you know benefits or whatnot subsidies if you do want to add a 20 percent uh, affordability onto your development but from my understanding nobody takes them 
Well, that's true. Mm-hmm. You know, that we actually had a bonus system for a long period of time right. um, that it was very complicated, though. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, the UDO that they just passed, actually, it, it the incentives that the UDO puts in there for affordable housing could actually work for a lot of market rate developers because what it does is it allows additional density. So instead of saying, okay, right. if you do this, we'll give you one unit or two units extra, it actually will let you go up an extra floor. Mm. And suddenly that, you know, that, that becomes more viable to the market rate developer than the old system of doing, you know, actually mandating affordable housing because it becomes an incentive. Mm -hmm. Suddenly they can make more money if they do one floor of affordable housing or 10 units of affordable housing. Right, because the old model was just... It just, oh, we it could, did you not could work. try to do all that, but we could just build this apartment building and people are going to move in regardless at market Correct. rate. And and because Charlotte's kind of a closed market for, for apartment buildings and for trading them, um, and we've never had affordable housing and market rate housing mixed in a big building. Um, nobody wants to build it because nobody wants to test the, the secondary market. You know, mm-hmm. if I'm building it to hold for three years, I just want everything to be market because that's how I'm going to make my money in three years. And that's what happens a lot. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just sort of lost my train of thought. But um, in terms of other other ways, something that you just mentioned about the UDO rang a bell for me. But um, in terms of other effects that that might have on the work that both of you guys do, is there anything that sort of jumps out in terms of that you were hoping would or wouldn't be a part of the new the new UDO? Well, I I do think that there's still quite a bit of refinement that they're working on uh, that will actually help us with some of the density issues. Um, right now it's a little complicated still. And so I do think that there's some refinement going on. And I think everybody knew that there was going to need to be some refinement going on, but we're pretty excited about the fact that, you know, they're, they're absolutely with the intent of, they will allow, you know, at least duplexes and triplexes in on a single family lot. Mm -hmm. And I do think that that'll make a difference. I know there's a lot of controversy around that because people say, oh, they're going to just come in with, you know, two $500,000 apartments Mm -hmm. or condos instead of one big, huge house, you know, but at the same time for affordable housing developers, that's actually really exciting because like in the Druid Hills neighborhood right now, we, we also have an Avaline product there that is a duet, just two units on one lot. And we're able to sell both of them as affordable. And, you know, those things, we've, we started 22, 11 buildings, 22 units, and all of them sold within probably 30 days mm. because it's just such a popular area. They can't find that purchase price anywhere else. They have down payment assistance available. For us, being able to buy, build two units on one lot is making a big difference. Mm-hmm. I just read, I hope I get this right, um, and I haven't been there, so I've only read about it. I read an article about Minneapolis being one of the U.S. cities who's best been able to control inflation because, you know, these stats about what percentage of inflation is actually being driven by housing costs. Mm-hmm. Minneapolis did two things, and you guys make sure I'm right on this, but one, they got rid of single-family zoning, and so they allow duplexes and triplexes, mm-hmm. and then they also established rent control. And so this article is saying these two pieces 
really have helped Minneapolis be resilient during this time of inflation for the people who live there um, because they did kind of these large scale housing moves that were very both very controversial, I think. Right. But it was interesting because I had only heard about the controversy and now to see kind of on the other side what what at least this author was saying the mm-hmm. impact was. Julie, I see your face. You might have I, a different I, view. No, I thought it was one of the other things that Minneapolis did, which was innovative, but would really not go over well here, <laughs> is they said to the small towns, um, that were in the same county mm. said, if you want any highway money, if you want any improvement from us, you will have to do inclusionary zoning. You have to include um, some affordable housing in any development that you do. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, we'll give you your highway money. Right. So it was. It, there was a lot that yeah, went in. Just imagine the the Pineville recession <laughs> or succession talk. <laughs> I don't think it would work here, but at the same time, they did it, mm-hmm. and it worked. Um, now, Minneapolis right now, you know, they're they're actually in a little bit of trouble with some of that because um, their delinquencies are so high in that city right now that uh, they are really struggling. Mm. So there's, you know, there's there's balancing mm-hmm. that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, Liz, this is a, sort of a broad question, but um, just discussing how we discussed earlier with the encampment that popped up during COVID and uh, obviously we did nonstop coverage on that whole process. We don't need to re- revisit that entire process of, re- of finding uh, temporary housing for these folks. And I'll call it temporary housing because, you know, I went there, visited and followed up and uh, knew some of the folks who were there at the hotel. I won't say exactly where because I still don't know. We kind of sort of kept it for privacy <laughs> rights, secret in the media, those who knew. But um, but just it was not close. Let's say that uh, mm-hmm. not close to where the encampment was. And how have you seen, has that affected um, folks in that community in terms of, from my understanding, folks were just sort of one by one slowly going out from that hotel and doing their own thing and making their way back to where they could have a more convenient life. Um, Have you seen, did that have an effect on sort of the placement of folks in that community or is it just sort of a temporary one-off thing? Um. The people who were displaced from the encampment and right. moved to the encampment, what we called the encampment motel. Right, yes. Um, so, th- I mean, there are a lot of people did get housing. Mm. And um, so I know, like, the rise on Clanton, we have multiple people who were in the encampment and the encampment motel. And when okay. we opened, moved in, and we have people in other housing programs. So sometimes it wasn't directly from the encampment motel, but sometimes someone will be telling a story and they'll say, well, yeah, you oh, know, yes, I was in Tent City. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, that was just a huge trauma in mm-hmm. people's lives. Right. And, um, you know, that the community really came together in the closing down of the encampment. And I give CMPD a lot of credit and a lot of other cities where things like that happen, people get arrested. And, you know, I think everyone really worked together. Um, but that doesn't mean it wasn't a significant trauma right. in someone's life. Um, and I think, you know, people, um, but it was also a trauma living in the encampment, right? Mm-hmm. So there's just like, there's not great answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that housing's the solution. And as you point out, like housing, it's slow to develop. And, you know, the faster programs with subsidies, you know, it's harder to to utilize now. Um, and so 
I do know people were housed. I do know there's some people who are still outside mm -hmm. now who were in the encampment. Um, and I, I read this book the other day, and a, a man talked about uh, the Greek god that was cursed to push the boulder up the hill. And he said, but I think, you know, that wasn't a curse. I think it's meaningful to mm -hmm. keep pushing the boulder up the hill. Right. And I thought, you know, I'm going to hang on to that because in some ways this work, it's like, in some ways I feel like all we're doing is we're losing ground less quickly. Like we're giving mm -hmm. everything and we're just <laughs> losing ground, not quite as fast as we would have if we weren't all working this hard. But then when you delve into relationships, and so I, I spent much of today at the Rise on Clanton and, you know, talking with folks who are in such a different place than they were a year ago. And it's like, yeah, that's why we keep pushing because Absolutely. housing mm -hmm. is foundational in people's lives and people take this opportunity and they do sometimes amazing things with it. And sometimes they just have a plain old life, you know, in their yeah. apartment and without having to figure out every day how to survive. Were you reading Rough Sleepers? Yes. Is Tracy that, Kidder? Is, yeah. Yeah, in Boston? You, yes. Yeah, I just finished that book. It's amazing. I, I didn't love the Actually, I could discuss that, but yeah. I had I, I have lots of critiques of the book, but mm -hmm. that piece, I thought, that's the piece I'm going to take from this book and right. move on to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really enjoyed, I think I mentioned on this, uh, and tell me if, I'm, if you didn't, but I, there was one piece that I really took from that book in which he talks about how uh, homelessness sort of as a prism where you shine the light of, I don't know what you want to call it, the light of society, whatever, you shine a light through it and it shows all the cracks in every other mm -hmm. system from <laughs> from justice to healthcare to literally everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that was really meaningful. But um, so I, on that same note that you were just saying, we want to take this out on a positive note. So we'll talk about some of the things that you guys are excited about or really optimistic about in your, uh, in your at your specific or at your respective uh organizations moving forward we know we talked about the most recent projects that you all are working on but what is it that uh that you're just sort of get you get you excited about the coming year or years at um for us well first of all it's always exciting when somebody gets the keys mm -hmm. to their their first home um if whether it's rental or whether it's home ownership um and we're opening two uh new apartment communities in the next 30, 60 days. Mm -hmm. So that is always one of my favorite days is moving day. Um, it always reminds me of that. There used to be a, a book called The Rats of Nim, and she was always saying, it's moving day, it's moving day. And that is always going to be my favorite day. Awesome. Because those people, lots of times they have not owned um, or rented a home that is as nice as what we can provide. And so when we see that, we know we've been successful and um, it makes us want to do it again. And we do have some great projects coming up. I mean, we've actually closed more um, deals this year than we have in any year. Now, a lot of that was because there was some extraordinary subsidy that came down to do the ones that had gotten stalled during COVID. But, you know, to be able to, to close five deals mm. is pretty amazing in a given year. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
Well, all moving day is my favorite day too. So <laughs> yes. I like that. I read Rats and Nim like I was, oh, that was a long time ago, I think. But, um, so it is, it's the people and relationships that, mm -hmm. you know, are always uh, root me and ground me in this work. But on a policy level, um, I think adaptive reuse, what are all those buildings that we can reimagine as solutions for housing? So mm -hmm. I'm really proud of the rise on Clanton and we've got a few other things coming up that are going to be this adaptive reuse. Right. And so so I get excited about that. I do get excited about the Housing Impact Fund and things that are preserving, you know, this market affordability that we still have. Um, and then, you know, my husband makes fun of me. This, is, But I love this town because, like, again, when I look at, like, L.A. and Seattle and Portland and you listen that people can't find common ground, but I feel like this is a, a community where we can continue to push to find common ground and find new innovations together. And so I am grateful to be doing this work in this community. And so I always think, you know, like we're still becoming, we're still deciding who we wanna be and we still have some tools to try to become that. Absolutely. Hey Liz. We, we should at least highlight the one that we're working on together. You know, Easter's home. Um, oh, yeah? Yes. Yes, at Caldwell Presbyterian Church. Uh, that should be, you know, starting um, sometime in the next 30 to 60 days. And that's going to be 20 units of supportive housing. And in this case, Dream Key is pretty much just the construction manager. Um, and then Liz is going to take it over and is going to manage it once those units are in place. Awesome. So, but it's also the church is actually doing a long-term lease on an adaptive reuse building. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's really an exciting project. And we have to say that churches have really stepped up during this period of time to help with affordable housing. We've never had that situation before. And suddenly, you know, we've got a lot of the faith organizations coming to us and saying, how can we help? Absolutely. You know. Easter's home. Easter's home. Whereabouts is that? That is at Caldwell Presbyterian oh. Church. It's in um, the Elizabeth neighborhood. Gotcha. So right beside CPCC, and they're imagining their old education building and turning it into apartments. Oh, and we'll that's be awesome. ending chronic homelessness for the tenants there. That's great. That's a great note to end on. Love it. <laughs> All right. Well, I really appreciate you guys both coming on here. Julie, Liz, it's been a pleasure and uh, appreciate your insights. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Have a good one. Cheers. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. dot com.